Welcome to The Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chess Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shout-outs, fun facts, and weekly banner in 10 minutes or less. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Welcome, Dr. Choi, to Fracture Line. It's a pleasure to have you. We always have the guest host kind of introduce themselves and let us know uh, where, where they're from, what they're doing, what they're passionate about. Thanks so much. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Jeff Choi. I'm one of the general surgery residents at Stanford. I'm um, also currently a graduate student with Stanford University's Biomedical Informatics program. Um, I'm in my fourth year of residency uh, conducting research time with Dr. Forster and some of our other faculty uh, attendings. Um, really excited about anything chest wall injury related, uh, applying epidemiology, uh, computer vision, uh, and other economic analyses to improve outcomes for uh, patients with chest wall injuries. So really excited to talk to you today about some of the research that we've been working on. Well, well, Dr. Choi, thanks again for coming. Um, you're here to talk about some of your most recent research. The floor is yours. All right. Thanks so much. Um, so, so the first study uh, I'd like to talk about is our recent uh, publication in the Journal of Trauma Acute Care Surgery, um, Nationwide Cost-Effectiveness Analysis of Surgical Stabilization of Rib Fractures by Flail Chest and Age Groups. Um, so just as an overview, um, there's been I think there's been several studies talking about the benefits of uh, SSRF for patients with flail chest and even patients uh, without flail chest. But one uh, aspect that we haven't discussed in depth before was cost effectiveness. So what is cost effectiveness? Um, so according to the second panel guidelines, you know, this is a panel of economists, health policy experts who develop guidelines to judge the cost effectiveness of studies. There's a couple of variables that we have to consider when we're thinking about incorporating new surgeries or new procedures into clinical practice. Uh, one is quality adjusted life years. So it's essentially talking about the quality of life of patients. And second is, of course, the cost, the cost associated with the new procedure um, and other relevant costs. And the cost and the quality adjusted life years can be combined into a variable called ICER, incremental cost effectiveness uh, ratio. And now, depending on different governments, uh, governments set different ICERs for what's considered uh, cost effective or not. Uh, for example, in the United States, uh, if a new procedure um, results in an ICER of less than $150,000 for, uh, $150, for quality adjusted life year, that's something that's considered cost effective, as opposed to if something has an ICER of, let's say, 200,000 or 300,000 uh, ICERs, that's not considered cost effective. Um, so this is, again, just very brief overview of, of some of the terminology that I'll, that I'll be using when describing our study. So what we were interested in is to figure out you know, whether SSRF is effective for four distinct subgroups. Um, and the subgroups are divided by age, uh, age subgroups, uh, greater than or equal to or less than age 65, and by the presence or absence of fell chest. So we'll have fell chest, you know, younger than 65, fell chest, greater than or equal to 65, and so on. And the, the takeaway is that we found that SSRF is cost effective uh, for all patients with fill chest, regardless of their age, whether they're younger or older than 65. Um, we did not find that cost effect, uh, that SSRF is cost effective for patients without fill chest, with the caveat that depending on certain variables, 
uh, SSRF still can be cost effective for patients even without valve chest. So let's go into a little bit more in depth. Yeah. So when we look at cost effectiveness, the, the time period is important. A lot of retrospective studies you know, consider only a single hospitalization or perhaps uh, a, a single admission and consider the outcomes in that way. What we did in this analysis was that we considered all potential lifetime complications and uh, and sequelae after a rib fracture admission. Um, so what we did was we considered both the inpatient, uh, what, can, what can happen to a patient while they're hospitalized, and what can happen to a patient after their hospitalization. So within that inpatient hospitalization, um, we developed what are called decision trees. So we can, can use decision trees to define the probabilities of certain events happening whether or not the patient is gonna have a complication or not a complication. And we can be very specific about the complications that they have. And after a patient is discharged, um, we can conduct probability analysis for to you know, figure out you know, what's the probability that this particular patient is gonna be discharged to a home, not to a home, what's the probability that these patients are gonna be readmitted, readmitted again, what's their uh, chance of mortality you know, 10 years out, 20 years out. All these variables are actually available um, on based on national probabilistic uh, statistics. And we incorporated all these national statistics into a Markov model for the post-discharge outcomes and a decision tree model for the inpatient outcomes. So essentially, we can account for every single uh, scenario that you can think of for an individual patient who is hospitalized with rib fractures and, and, and conduct this analysis for these four groups. Um, so this is a pretty extensive uh, study. Uh, we actually had a member of the second panel uh, as an advisor on, on the study, given the extensive you know, economic analysis that was required. And But it, you know, if you alter certain variables, there are lots of scenarios where even for patients with without failed chest, um, SSRF can be cost-effective. So for example, if a patient does not have failed chest, uh, but their chances of having an in-hospital complication, and complication can include anything from pneumonia um, to, to surgical site infection. Now, if that is over 20%, and we know that especially in elderly adults, the chance of complication is well over 20%, then SSRF actually ends up being uh, more cost-effective than non-operative management. Um, so I, I think, you know, our, our study may be, uh, you know, for, for someone who's not familiar with cost-effective study, it may come off as, as like a very complex uh, methodologic analysis. But the key takeaway is that SSRF is cost-effective if you do have filler chest, and it can still be cost-effective depending on the patient scenario, even if you don't have filler chest. Um, so what I, you know, what I want to emphasize is that the case is not that SSRF is not cost effective if you don't have failed chest. Um, just want to clarify that. Um, so the I, I hope our, our study, the, the hope is that our study adds a, a, an economic angle to the increasing interest in surgical stabilization of refractors because of course, there's lots of studies showing that SSRF is associated with improved outcomes, um, but you know, we really need to start uh, considering seriously about cost effectiveness. And that's, I think, where, where our study comes in. Jeff, this is really exciting stuff. Um, for those of us who believe that this therapy, uh, you know, we, we apply it to patients, individual patients, and we see good outcomes, and we want this therapy to be widely applied because we think it helps people. It's, this is a very, very important piece because heretofore we just haven't had good cost 
cost analysis stuff. So this is a really good first start. But so Mike, two things. Number one, this is going to be Mark's hardest uh, podcast to uh, edit because you just used a lot of really big words there, and he's going to have to sort through those and figure out what to keep in and what to take out. But it, that be that as it may, the it, do you think we'll ever get to a point where we can model individuals likelihood for cost effectiveness in other words 65 year old guy two comorbidities crashed his bike has this rib fracture pattern um non-flail can we ever get so granular that we can estimate a, a certain a patient a individual patient's likelihood for cost benefit thank you dr white that that's an excellent question um i think the answer is we can't, we'll never be able to model anything perfectly. Uh, you know, we don't have clairvoyance. However, I think with a good prediction model, and this will tie into another project that we'll be working on, um, with a good prediction model, I think we can, um, you know, predict cost effectiveness for the individual patient. Um, so using, if we have a data set that's large enough to classify patients, you know, by age group, you know, by, you know, 10 years of age by, let's say, whether or not they have less than three, you know, three to five, five or more rib fractures by certain injury patterns. Um, I certainly do think we have the capacity to develop a risk prediction model. Uh, and the risk prediction models will provide the inputs for our existing uh, cost effectiveness model. And it should be theoretically feasible to calculate cost effectiveness, you know, when a patient arrives uh, to, to the hospital. Again, it, it's, it's certainly um, not going to be perfect. We'll never be able to perfectly predict any event, including cost effectiveness. Um, but, but it will, I think, uh, provide a, a gauge for, for surgeons and clinicians to, to understand, um, you know, to, to better perhaps inform their decision to perform SSRF. I was going to ask that same question, Dr. White. Well, as you know, <laughs> holy, the holy grail in the ICU for since I've been doing ICU work is to is to build a predictive tool so we know that grandma has X chance of surviving this hospitalization and using that to to define futility and to plan, you know, heroic uh, therapies and whether they're appropriate or not. And I, I think I think it might be a bit easier in, in chest wall injury because the consequences aren't as great. If you take a patient with rib fractures that aren't life-threatening, and most are not, um, it would be nice, it would be a luxury, but it would really be nice to be able to determine for an individual patient whether or not operating on that patient um, is, is, is the right thing to do and, and benefits them uh, in the long term. So I, 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 I'm very interested in these predictive models, and I, I think this is a huge first step towards uh, that that reality someday. So, Jeff, thanks for your work. It's terrific. Thank you, Dr. White. So, Sarah Ann, what other announcements do we have for this uh, for this week? You know, I think Dr. White's going to read us the new member list because we've had some, some new joins. Indeed, we have, and we have not uh, we've not announced new members for a couple of weeks. So, let me be the first to um, to officially welcome our newest members of CWIST, Kevin Christensen from Springfield, Missouri. Uh, Dr. Kevin Christensen, Dr. Colby Elder from Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, who gave, he's a resident. Uh, he gave an excellent presentation just a short time ago on the case review series. Caitlin Renner is a uh, critical care fellow uh, from Denver, Colorado. 
Uh, Caitlin is uh, working on a project that many of you will hear about. Uh, it's helping. It's a survey project looking at uh, designing in, using a Delphi method, a, 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 inst a quality of life instrument that's appropriate for post-op and post-chest uh, wall specific quality of life measure tool. Thomas Crown is uh, from Overland Park, Kansas. I'm, I'm guessing he has something to do with Dr. K, but we'll, we'll find out. Dr. Anthony Aschioti from Indianapolis. Dr. Mark Schneckenberger is from Melbourne, Australia. And Ryan Robbins is uh, a, a resident. Mark, she works with you from uh, the University of Utah. You recruited her this week. Congratulations. She sure does. She's excellent. Yeah, welcome new members. That's amazing. It's exciting. It's a lot of new friends. Um, on the summit front, wanted to just give a little bit of um, a sneak peek about our keynote speaker, um, Dean Cardinal. So Dean has led a life of adventure. Um, just to give you a, a little bit of his background, and, and this is quite truly just a little bit of the many, many things he's done. Um, he has climbed and led expeditions in North America, Central America, South America, Africa, Europe, um, the Himalayas. He's, he's been everywhere. Um, he summited Everest back in 2005. He is, I'm, I'm trying to think, oh, he, some of the other notable things that, that I've talked about with Dean, he um, did a self-supported ski traverse across the Greenland ice cap and also has sailed a transatlantic ocean crossing. Like he, he is truly, um, you know, the, the world's most interesting man. And uh, he is going to talk to us about leadership and some of the, the ways that he has been able to really find success and, and joy in his professional and um, in his his climbing and adventure world through working as a team and, and being able to to really find success in, in those around him. So I'm excited and I think you will love hearing from Dean. So do not miss the keynote uh, presentation. It is Thursday morning, April 22nd, um, mountain time. And uh, you'll want to get signed up for the for the summit, either online or in person, so that you can be a part of it. I have had a couple questions about the online component. Um, as mentioned, it uh, we will have almost all of the meeting broadcast online. The only portion of the meeting that will not be online is the hands-on component. We're not going to try to film that and broadcast it, and that that would just be unfulfilling for lots of people. So. The other than that, everything that happens live will happen in the online uh, version as well as um, be archived for up to 12 months. So whether you're on site or online, you will have access to the online version for the next year. Um, so you you don't have to watch it all in one shot. If if it's hard to sit in front of your computer, and I think for most of us it is for three solid days, then then feel free to pop in, say hello, watch some, ask some questions, and then you're you're welcome to come come and go as it makes sense for your schedule. Dr. White, what am I forgetting? Nothing, just a, just a plea to register. Uh, the registrations are, are coming in, but we, we need accurate numbers as, as, as time approaches. We're just under the four week mark and uh, pretty darn excited. Either Absolutely, and if you don't attend on Saturday, you won't get to hear Dr. Choi uh, discuss his uh, fellowship project or his resident and fellow project for the CWIS KLS Martin 
award that he won last year. So you will miss out. That sounds awesome. I thought Dr. White was the most interesting man in the world. No, that's just what he puts on his email signature. Oh, oh okay. All right. All right. right. I'm just yeah. confused about that. Mark, it's a big world. There's, there's plenty of room for more than one of us. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, you got to share it with the Dozeki guy. There's, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's uh, let's finish the talk with the uh, with the final stitch, guys. Uh, Doctor Choi, do you have one? No, my my final stitch is is Siwas is incredible. Um, this has been uh, such a welcoming organization. I've been so well supported by by everyone I've met, um, fellow residents, uh, fellows, faculty. Uh, so I'm, you know. If you're watching this, I assume you're already a member, but but certainly uh, do encourage your, your trainees to join CWIS. I'll certainly be encouraging our new class of interns uh, coming in and in July to to join CWIS as well. So go CWIS. It's an awesome group. Super excited to be a part of it. Do we have Jeff's address for that check we're going to mail him? Exactly. Tomorrow? Yes. We will, we will pay him for that promotional <laughs> Nothing tells me that's not what's been on his mind all week, but, but <laughs> Jeff, we appreciate it nonetheless. Thank you for that. You bet it is. I want to officially change SSRF to SURF. And it was <laughs> not my idea. It, 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 it's an offshoot of Annie, Dr. Annie Hess, who presented masterfully this week on riblets, which is another an offshoot of our ribcast. She, she referred to SSRF as SURF, and it immediately struck a chord with me. I thought it was, I didn't know if it was naivete or brilliance on her part, but I, I really, I just love the way it sounds. I think it's unique. I think it, 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 it keeps us from getting our, you know, taking ourselves too seriously. And I think it, it endears, um, endears us to each other. So I'm going to start, every time I see surf on a document or I have the, uh, the cause to mention it, I'm going to say surf. So if that confuses you, that's why. And I would challenge the rest of the CWIS membership to start adopting that moniker as well. So, for and for Dr. Periachi, that surf is not a initialism; it is a acronym. Nailed it. Back at you, Dr. P. I appreciate <laughs> Sarah, you, you got one? being the uh, literary snob for for Dr. Periachi. Um, <laughs> continuing on the literary trend, I actually read an article um, last night that I've been digging into because I I can't seem to let go of it. Speaking of. And um, it said that 27% of, of adult Americans have not um, completed or partially read a book in the last 12 months. And, uh, you know, given the ubiquitous nature of audiobooks, print books, e-readers, etc., I'm, I'm a little bit shocked that, that this is true, that 27% of Americans have not read at least a portion of a book. So if you are in that 27%, now is your time. You are going to step it up. Let's, let's all, and this, this was from a reputable source. This was the Pew Research Center. So this is the time I think I am challenging all of our listeners to read a book. I'm, I'm fine if it's, you know, young adult fiction. You just go right ahead. I don't even care. Just a book between now and the summit. You have officially 29 days. I'll tell you what I've been thinking about it really today was last night, just before I was falling asleep, somebody from Colorado Springs called me up and he said, hey, you remember when you crashed your trailer and you lost all the stuff inside? I was the guy who was recovering the stuff and I found your computer and your logbook and all this stuff that I really needed because it has research of mine and all this stuff. And 
and uh, he didn't have to do it because technically he owns it. So he just called me up. I had my logbook, my case logbook in that briefcase, and it says, if found, this is patient information, call Mark Crisco. And this guy called me. He didn't have to do it. It was awesome. So he's shipping my computer back today, which brings me to the next point. There's two people on this call who kind of helped me out getting another computer when uh, I lost that computer, and uh, thank you both very much. So what I'm going to do is sell that one and sponsor however many people I can to get into CWIS with that cash, whatever I get for it. So that's my, uh, that's my thought process for this morning or this afternoon. Thank you. You're the man. Or you could buy a book. Jeff, it was a yep. pleasure to have you on. I hope you enjoyed yourself and you'll come back. No, thanks so much for having me. Uh, we'd love to come back anytime. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks, I hope you all have a great week. All right. Same to you.